0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the poet A.E. Stallings, Alicia Stallings, whose first collection in the UK is This Afterlife. It's a selected poems that draws poems from our, her four collections, Archaic, Smile, Hapax, Olives and Like, as well as a couple of uncollected bits and pieces. And Alicia, can I start by saying, I'm sort of astounded when I got a thing from the publisher saying that this was your first UK publication because as I'm sure many of the listeners of this podcast will know you're a poet of international reputation with prizes MacArthur Genius grants, Pulitzer shortlistings up the wazoo Why have you not had a UK publisher before now?
1: That's that's a good question. I mean I've, I've actually published translations in the UK with Penguin Classics but I guess I was focused on getting published in the US and maybe I thought the books are also available in the UK, but I think they're really hard to get in the UK. And then I thought, you know, a lot of the poems, individual poems I publish are in UK publications. And I feel like I, I hope I have a UK readership. And I thought I'd be nice if it were a little easier to get a hold of these poems. And so I was really pleased um, with Carcanet bringing this out and finally having a
0: a UK book. Well, it's a fantastic collection. And actually also, oh, sorry, what to ask? I introduced you presumptuously as Alicia. You publish as AE. Now I made this mistake with AM Holmes when I greeted her by first name, and she was extremely starchy about it. Why why do you publish as A.E.?
1: Well, it's a good question. I started I started publishing really, really young, as a teenager, even. And you know, I had some poems out in 17 Magazine. And I think I thought that this is what writers do. You know, I've been reading like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot. And I thought, you know, if you're serious, then you go by your initials. After a while, I was publishing under that. And well, also there was like Alicia Osterker. I think I felt like, you know, there's more than one Alicia, Alicia out in the world. And I started with the initials and then I, I kind of I'm sort of stuck with them. I mean, it, I think it did help me in the beginning that I was gender neutral. I do think as a very young female poet, you know, it helped me get taken a little bit more seriously by editors. I would get letters, you know, Dear Mr. Stallings, thank you yeah. for your poem. So I've just kind of stuck with it. And, you know, I'm a big fan of A.E. Houseman. So <laughs> I feel like it's also an homage. And, you know, now the, the cover of this afterlife has made a big deal about the initials. <laughs> so, oh, so I'm definitely sticking with them. But I don't mind being called by my first name. Fantastic. Well, actually, that's
0: your point about the gender-neutral initialisms. There's a poem I'd love you to read, which is from relatively early in your career, called, is it Song 4 or Song 2, Female Poets?
1: It's a song for the women poets.
0: Women poets.
1: <laughs> sing, sing. Because you can, descend in murk and pitch, double-talk the ferryman and three-throated bitch, sing before the king and queen, make the grave to grieve, till Persephone weeps kerosene and wipes it on her sleeve, and she will grant you your one wish to fetch across a river black and sticky as licorice, the one you lost forever, don't look back. But no one heeds. You glance down in the water. The image drowning in the weeds could be your phantom daughter. And part of you leaves Tartarus, but part stays there to dwell. You who are both Orpheus and she, he left in hell. Thank you. That. What was it that made you
0: think that there was a specific song needed for female poets, for women poets? <laughs> Is it a different position to be in?
1: Well it is in some ways a different position to be in if you're someone like me with a with a classical background and you think about all of these mythologies that have to do with you know learning to sing and and becoming a poet and obviously orpheus and eurydice is a myth i've written about from the very beginning and one that interests me a great deal but then if you're a woman poet where do you slot into that i mean i think you you kind of identify with both sides so I thought it would be kind of interesting to sort of explore that to the bitter end. And I don't think it was initially called Song for the Women Poets. Someone pointed out to me that there was an earlier version that had a different title, something like To the Muses or something. And then I I realized the title could be just more specific and and sort of direct the reader's attention to what I'm doing more directly. So... I think that's what I was doing with that title.
0: Actually, got another lo- lovely poem about Apollo taking charge of the muses, and they're all waiting. It's a sort of HR department meeting, almost, isn't it? They're all yes.
1: That in fact was the first poem, sort of non juvenilia poem that got published in a in a regular journal. That one got picked up by Best American Poetry. So I think it was a very early poem that also was kind of in this virtuous circle of kind of encouraging me in a different direction than maybe I had been going and thinking oh people like these kinds of poems that I also do so (laughs) so that's also kind of a a pivotal poem for me well that you know
0: as is clear you're deeply involved in the classics can you go sketch out a bit how you kind of came to be writing poetry and how how that connects to your interest in the classics because you were born in the states and you I think I'm right you majored in classics at university
1: didn't you Yes. I majored in in Latin in undergraduate and did a master's degree in, in classical languages in Latin and Greek. Again, I, I feel like it's a sort of virtuous circle. I've always had an interest in mythology, you know, from childhood and, you know, from from books on the shelves and, you know, Hans Christian Andersen and, and the Grimm fairy tales. And those were kind of slotted in along with children's versions of Greek myths. And I don't think, as a child, I felt there was any difference at all between, you know, myths and fairy tales. To me, I think they're kind of a continuum and, you know, maybe add Alice in Wonderland to that, this kind of childhood reading where I just was very interested in, I think, the darkness of the stories, because I think as a kid, you know, you know, darkness is out there and adults are always kind of paving it over. And there's something very thrilling about these stories that bring it up to the surface or take you down below the surface, perhaps. So I think I was always interested in mythology. I came to classics late, which is maybe easier to do in the U.S. I did not take Latin in high school. My father wanted me to take Latin, and I took Spanish. And at some point in my university degree, which I had started in English literature and music, because I did know from very early on that I wanted to be a writer, I sort of felt, you know, I'm reading all these poets, and there's all these references to Latin and to classics and these Latin tags and, you know, maybe I should take, you know, at least Latin 101 and kind of have some sense of it. And I loved that class. And I just kept taking more and more classes in the classics department. And finally, the head of classics sort of took me aside and said, you know, you should think about changing your major, which I did come to the dark side. And I've never looked back from that. I I think it was also a time, you know, in the mid to late 80s English departments in the US. I don't know about the UK. There was a a lot of emphasis on theory. And so I was kind of turned off by many of my English literature classes. They weren't helpful to me as a wannabe writer. But then going to Latin, there was all this emphasis on the meter and the rhetorical devices and analyzing the poems. And I thought oh, this is useful. This is something I can I can use and I think also reading writers like Catullus, I was shocked by how contemporary they sounded, and that they could do this in these very tidy metrical forms. And I think that was, you know, an epiphany for me. Yeah,
0: I think you think you you managed to get through the classics course just before the wave of theory broke in classics <laughs> department. I think ten years <laughs> later, it was all over everywhere.
1: Yeah. The sweet spot.
0: And <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in this question of of the power of these myths and. The myths that you work, you know, you use as a sort of scaffolding or subject or, you know, template for a lot of your verse, the sort of thing you play on. How much do you see classical myth as being kind of, if you like, universal and contemporary and applicable? And how much is it, are you struck by the kind of radical otherness of it, the difference of the world and the worldviews of the ancients?
1: Well, I mean, I think both of those things are happening, you know, somewhat at the same time. I mean, maybe probably my outlook somewhat changed when I I moved to Greece. I moved to Greece in 1999 and I had been writing about Greek mythology, but it was kind of a different experience to be doing it in Greece. I think I enjoy that kind of slippage between the universal and the really bizarre (laughs) and that that's one of the things, you know, I'm kind of interested in exploring. And that's maybe one of the fun things about changing them up a little bit. You know, we get these versions. A a lot of the versions of the myths we get are really from Ovid, and Ovid kind of has his own way with them and tidies them up or, you know, gives them an etiology and so on.
0: You say he flips the sparrows in the story of Philomela. He he flips
1: the sparrow and the, I'm not the sparrow, the swallow and the the nighting So he does these things with it. I think that interested me. And then I thought, well, you know, these aren't sacred texts. One can play with them. You know, so I have a version with Hades and Persephone where, where there is no spring, you know, it just changes from autumn to winter and winter to autumn. And that there are things that you can do with this that I think are interesting or they're, they're fun for me. I don't know. I'm, I am kind of drawn to the, the darker side of these things, but I like the idea of, you know, people may have one idea of a myth in your mind, and then you can play on that expectation and change it up if you want to.
0: Yeah, I think you you give Penelope a very sly sort of, you know, think what you like, Odysseus. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there seems to be a sort of bit of a wave breaking at the moment of reversionings of classical myths, particularly from a sort of looking at it from the you know woman's standpoint and rewriting it from the female position. I mean, I know you know Natalie Haynes have been doing a lot of that in fiction Caroline Duffy's done it in poetry you know with the sort of Emily Wilson's version of the Iliad and the Odyssey Madeline Miller do you, I mean is there a reason that that's happening now do you think and how do you respond to those
1: well i think the main reason it's happening now is you have more women you know writing about these things or doing translations so they are simply going to come at it from a different angle I think, you know, in some cases, like with the Iliad and the Silence of the Girls, I mean, there are some wonderful arias in the Iliad that are by women. And even though women don't speak as often in the Iliad as men, when they do speak, I mean, they are on stage and everything stops. But there still is this idea of there are people who don't speak, who you can give voices to. And I think. Okay, you can come at that from a feminist perspective, but it's also simply a, a writerly opportunity. You know, if there's somebody whose perspective you haven't gotten, that's a sort of window for you. And in fact, of course, the person who almost invents this single-handedly is Ovid again, who has, you know, the heroides, where he has these wonderful letters of the various jilted women of, of myth to their no-good scoundrel partners or mates So, you know, this is also a very Ovidian thing to be involved with. But I think a lot of it is, on the one hand, you do tend to look at things from your particular experience and so on. Although I have also written from, you know, male mythological points of view. And on the other, just there's more opportunity there. And I think there's, you know, again, a sort of maybe virtuous circle where people see that being done and realize it can be done and are interested in doing it.
0: Yeah, there's that... that I think you were talking about how you know Ovid fixes a lot of the myths in unexpected forms or forms that haven't been there before. You mentioned, I think it's in the a sort of rubric to one of your Eurydice poems, that there is an anonymous poet somewhere who who kind of invented the idea of Eurydice's return from the underworld being a disappointment, being a failure. Is that?
1: I Yeah. Well, it's from an article. Again, this is a sort of what I got out of my My master's degree is like reading this article by Morris Bower. you know, where he posits there's some missing poem that changes the fate of Eurydice. You know, she's briefly mentioned in, I think, Plato, where she's a phantom. I think that's right. I could be wrong. You'll have classicists calling calling you. But (laughs) the thing is, the Orphean mysteries are about, you know, resurrection. They're about living again. So if the foundational story is his failing to do so, there's something wrong with this. And I think in a lot of times when we're reading even plays and so on, the endings that the poets and the playwrights give to things, such as Euripides' Medea, were fairly new to those audiences. They were shocking. They were a change. And Instead, we've made all of these things very orthodox, but I don't think they were originally orthodox. And I'm also interested, for instance, in how Ovid then takes that story that Virgil makes so beautiful in the Georgics, you know, when you've got the bees and you've got Orpheus and Eurydice, and he changes it. And, you know, you have one poet where she says almost nothing at all. She says, Wale, goodbye. And you have another poet where she gives this long aria about, you know, all the things that he shouldn't feel bad about or she will miss. So I think a lot of poetry is really about other poetry and about other stories or about other versions of those stories. So I think I plug into that to a certain degree. I'm kind of, you know, there's no point in simply rewriting something, you know, in different words. You want to have some kind of commentary or even twist to it, I think. Uh
0: Uh, You said you moved to Greece in, was it 1999? Yes. What what was it that brought you there? I know you're married to a Greek man. Was it your relationship that took you to Greece or was it the desire to...
1: Yes. I mean, we had been together for some time and we got married. And, you know, like many Greeks, there's this kind of Odyssean homecoming gene that kicks in. (laughs) we, We agreed to move to Greece for two years and... I'm not really sure what happened, but that was a long time ago. And now we have children and we're we're fairly well-established here. But it was, I mean, it was a strange time to move here. I mean, not, it was an interesting time, 99, or, you know, as my children say, the late 1900s, there was a lot of optimism in Greece. There A lot of Greeks returned because there was this idea that Greece was, you know, joining the EU and the Eurozone and The Olympics were coming. There was this optimism that it was going to be this fully European functioning state. And then almost immediately on the heels of this came this crushing economic crisis. And crisis is the wrong word because, you know, it went on on for a decade. You know, that's a depression, not a crisis. Um, Since my husband is a journalist, that was not the worst thing in a way to happen to us because there was a lot of news but it was an interesting time to watch all of these hopes, you know, completely disintegrate and then, you know, write hard on the heels of that, an immigration crisis. So it is never dull. <laughs> yeah. And
0: I, Notoriously, when, for instance, you know, Irish writers travel to France or America, they become, you know, aggressively more Irish. Has traveling to Greece, you know, given you that silence, exile, cunning kind of thing where your poetry becomes more American or...
1: That's a good question. I think there was a lot of anxiety in my mind. You know, is the muse going to have my forwarding address? I thought of myself in some ways as a Southern writer, you know, which I think I still am, but being kind of separated from the American vernacular on a day to day interaction basis, I think is anxiety inducing in a poet. You don't want to start writing English and, you know, syntax that doesn't really sound like a native speaker. But on the other hand, I think a poet is always kind of a foreigner in their own language. I mean, one of my theories is that poets have a kind of, a kind of issue. They, they are stuck in the language acquisition mode of childhood. So that, you know, you'll hear and, you know, then to be in another language where you're really back in that language acquisition state kind of emphasizes that. So, you know, for instance, if I hear in Greek a very common idiomatic expression, the poetry of it because I'm not a native speaker forces itself upon my mind, you know, so that for instance in English if we it's pouring down rain, we might say it's raining cats and dogs, which is a very odd expression, but we don't think about it as being odd. And you know, in Greek it's raining chair legs, which I think is maybe a better visual. <laughs> so, you know, I think there are There are drawbacks and there are advantages to constantly living in a language that is not your own. And then I think also with the internet and Netflix and everything else, maybe I am exposed to the American vernacular as much as I need to be. It's
0: pretty inescapable. I mean, you have a poem learning Greek where there is that very strong sense of of the language really shaping the world around you and how you see it. Is that is that your experience of living between two languages? I mean, does does Greek? impress itself on your world view?
1: Well, I think it does. I mean, I think there's also a double issue going on because I did study classical Greek, which, of course, I mean, you know, I think of Greek as a continuum. I don't think, you know, these are separate languages, ancient Greek, medieval Greek, Koine Greek, Katherebusa Greek, Demotic Greek. I do think of them as a continuum, but having learned classical Greek, there is this very strange feeling of using on a daily basis words that are very important in Homer and having this kind of collapse of this diachronic collapse, I think, or everything going on at once, maybe expansion. It's one of the things you realize, the contemporary Greek language uses a huge amount of Homeric vocabulary, for instance. their whole lines of Homer that pronounced correctly are fairly intelligible. You know, this is not the case with us and Beowulf, for instance, and this is a much longer period of time. So there is this kind of spooky feeling, you know, this is thalassa, this is these just basic words you're using every day.
0: So the poetry is kind of closer to the surface in some way. Yes, maybe. Looking back, I mean, you know, when you come to, I'm assuming you did the selection for this this volume, it's obviously an opportunity to kind of look back over your, the course of your career. Do you see yourself changing? Do you think, you know, my style has really noticeably changed? I think you've got an afterword in which you say, you know, I haven't gone back to change anything or, or anything that doesn't sit well with me. You know, I've left as as was for the most part. But do you see a sort of shape to to your poetry's development?
1: Well, you certainly see um, repeated concerns or obsessions or themes, you know, that just keep returning. I mean, there are poems that I wrote as a very young poet that I would not be able to write now. I just, that was a time period when I was doing certain things or experimenting with certain things or maybe didn't have a handle on certain things. But on the other hand, I think from the very beginning, there were like certain modes of poems that return, you know, I've got Sonnets, they return. I have formally experimental poems, they return. I have persona poems, they return. Often the same person returns, but from a different life point vantage. Also, it's a you could sort of say, oh, that was really a weak poem. I should not have put that in a book and and kind of tidy that one away for the time being. On the other hand, I think it's really it can also be hard to be a judge of your own work. I did a lot of twitter polls you know like, like are there any poems that you think i should include because sometimes there are poems that people really enjoy or in readings and i think is is that really such a strong poem but i thought you know i want people to be able to find that poem and if they buy this book to to have that poem that they're looking for so it's kind of a combination of poems i think that maybe didn't get as much attention as they should have and poems that you know our favorites of people and for whatever reason and I wanted to to be easy to access that
0: yeah something that you've mentioned as we've been talking and that's that's very obvious I think to anybody who who reads your work is that you are interested in form you rhyme I mean your poems scan actually not in a metronomic meter but there's a sort of quantity to the length of the lines that decision to write in form—I mean, you've been associated. I know no poets ever, ever assent to the groupings in which they're placed. But with the so-called new formalists, what was it that attracted you to form, and why? Why did you start writing in form at a time when generally it was often seen as backward-looking and stuffy, and you know something that had been destroyed in the early years of the twentieth century, never to return?
1: Well, I think um, starting out as a sort of baby poet—that was the Worldview I had absorbed, and you know, when I was trying to publish poems as a teenager, I would, I would take a journal off the shelf and look at the poems and try to write something like that, and then try to get it published because I thought the point was to get published, not to write poems. This worked for a while, and then around the time I was at university, I ceased being able to place any of these poems at all, um, which I think was good for me, and I had to sort of retrench and think about why I was writing. Because it wasn't for these little piddling checks, you know, 15 dollars here, or whatever, which is not bad. So and I was in Athens, Georgia, at a time when it was a very hip and happening place, and everybody was in a band, and everyone was performing. and there was a lot of spoken word also. And I was somewhat on the fringes involved in in music, but uh, I also started doing poetry readings, and I was writing at this point poems to entertain my friends often who were in classics classes. And, you know, the poems that that rhymed after a fashion or scanned and had that rhythmic thing going for them went over very well with live audiences. And again, there was this kind of encouragement. I realized these were the poems I also liked to read. I spent a lot of time reading Edna St. Vincent Millay and A.E. Hausman and these poets who were not very fashionable, at the time, but that we loved, we'd read these poems aloud in our dorm room, you know, and Dorothy Parker. And I thought, you know, I can do this also. And then it became more about utterance maybe and performance. And so I started doing a little bit more of that. And at some point after the master's degree, I, well, I did have a kind of epiphany of a certain kind of way I could strip this down and have a direct voice. There are certain poems where I sort of figured this out. And then when I started submitting again in my early 20s, the the poems that got taken, like Apollo takes charge of his muses at the Bloit Poetry Journal, were those poems that I'd been kind of writing for my friends and for myself and not the sort of pretentious poems where I was trying to write like an award-winning New Yorker published writer. And so I kind of... Started trusting that more and kind of embracing that more.
0: I mean, you, you wrote in your essay, Afrofuturism, you wrote, in America, use of form has long been an oddly politicized choice. You say, you know, women are criticized in the same way for using it. You say there's a false dichotomy free verse equals democracy and empowerment and progress, formal verse equals oppression and elitism and kowtowing to dead white males. Does that still hold, do you think?
1: The impression of it still holds. I mean, just going by social media. It's obviously untrue. I mean, you know, you think of certainly not political allegiance. You think of a very left-leaning poet like W.H. Auden writing in form and, you know, quite right-leaning poets like T.S. Eliot (laughs) writing in free verse. So it obviously doesn't hold true. And yet somehow this persists and this idea that if you're using received forms, you are cooperating or something in the patriarchy. I just don't buy any of it. For one thing, I think that received forms are very democratic because the rules are out there. The rules are not out there for free verse in the same way. I mean, what makes good free verse? But, you know, the rules of you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a Petrarchan sonnet. Those rules are out there. And in fact, you know, women have ruled the sonnet for a very long time. They were the ones in the early 19th century who who brought it back from the dead. The sonnet was just not done. You know, it was all those Augustine couplets. And suddenly women were like, you can do a standalone sonnet and it can be to the moon or insomnia. And, you know, then the romantic male poets take that and run with it. But women were always very, very important in the English sonnet and in English forms. And, you know, if you think Anonymous is a woman, they are inventing those forms as well. <laughs> so I really feel very strongly that, you know, received form belongs to everybody and that is what makes it democratic it's elitist in the sense that you know if you do it well it's going to be better than if you do it poorly but it's not elitist in the sense that it's some kind of arcane knowledge the rules are out there
0: yeah that's probably crudely put but you you said just now you know you can sit down and say I'm going to write a Petrarchan sonnet is that how it works for you I mean do you start with the form or do you start with a line or a phrase? Or
1: Not always, and it, very seldom I do. I mean, if I have not been writing for a while, I will tend to write a sonnet because <laughs> it's just clearing the pipes and that might be a throwaway sonnet and there might be nothing to it. Sometimes a poem comes about because I am trying to negotiate a technical problem. I kind of feel that certain kind of technical constraints as avant-garde poets would say, free up your subconscious because your conscious mind is busy counting syllables or or whatever it is that it's doing. And that kind of allows your subconscious more free reign because the, the bean counter is busy. But there are poems that have been, you know, a subject I wanted to write about and I couldn't find the form. So I have a poem, Bad News Blues, which obviously you think that has got to be in a blues form, but it started out as quatrains. And then it was a sonnet. And then it became a blues poem. And there are poems that start out because there's a rhythm or a line. My triolet or triolet, for, for Martin Luther, the apocryphal words of Martin Luther, which is probably my most published poem, Why Should the Devil Get All the Good Tunes, that really started because I had a new baby and the baby was colicky. And I thought, I'll never write again. And I'm pacing up and down the room with this screaming infant. And suddenly, you know, this quotation, which is apocryphally ascribed to Martin Luther, why should the devil get all the good tunes, came into my head. And this triolet or triolet built itself very rapidly out of that. It's an eight-line poem. Two of the lines repeat. So if you steal one line, you're writing six lines. And... um, and, you know, I realize now that, that it was a kind of rough lullaby. I was like, you know, please go to sleep, child. So sometimes there's a sort of earworm, a line that wants to come forward. And sometimes it's a metrical experiment. And sometimes you sit down and you think, oh, I will hammer out a sonnet. <laughs> now, you also
0: translate. There are a couple of translations here. I, I'm ignorant enough not to have heard of Angelos Sicilianos, who's you know, you've done a version of here. And... Do you feel like translation is is sort of something done with the other hand, or is it absolutely continuous with your poetic practice?
1: I think it's absolutely continuous, and I think I started getting serious about both at roughly the same time. I mean, translation is a wonderful thing for a poet to have, because on days when you're not inspired and you're facing the blank page, you can use all those muscles, you know, you can use all those skills, and you're not, so worried about what you want to say because that is sort of there for you after a fashion. Although I do think translation is kind of specific, intense kind of reading because you can't fudge it the way you actually read most of the time when you're translating. And it kind of saves you from yourself. It saves you from your generation. You can be a different person, a different gender, be in a different era, you know, have different concerns. So it can expand Things you feel like you can write about, you know, and it's if you're dealing with a minority language such as Greek and Modern Greek, you know, also you can feel like, okay, I'm getting this poem out into the world that people probably, you know, if it's not Kavafi, don't know very well. <laughs> so I think it's a it's a great thing, and I feel it's very much the same, the same muscles, the same skills, the same thing going on.
0: You say you can't fudge it. I mean, someone like Robert Lowell with his imitations you know, really fudged it. Do you feel you've got license as a poet yourself to just, to be freer than a straight translator might be?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously an imitation is a different thing. And, you know, he was persuaded to call those imitations, I think because of the trouble Pound had had with Propertius. You know, you can't call these translations, you're going to get, you know, eviscerated. I think you can do whatever you want to do in a translation as long as you're upfront about it. That's the ethical element of translation. If I'm doing a complete versioning of something and I call it a version, I can get away with it. What I mean by not being able to fudge it is not that you can't be creative or take liberties. I mean that, for instance, if something is ambiguous in the Latin or the Greek or, or whatever language you're translating from, you know, if you're in a class, you all agree that it's ambiguous and you move on, you know, check. This could mean this or this could mean that. But a translator has to come down on one side of that. You can't have both open at once unless there is some, you know, pun available in English, which there probably is not, that can let you do that. So you are always having to kind of choose your own adventure when it comes to, you know, multivalence and so on. So I think that's what I mean by not being able to fudge it. But I think you can be as free as, as you dare to be, as long as you're upfront about that. And if it's a poem that's been translated a million times, like some Cavafy poems, I say have at it. I think there's maybe a different ethical dilemma if the poet has not been brought into English yet and you want to you know, be closer to the word-for-word word faithfulness.
0: Now, one of the surprises in the book, in this Selected Poems, is, is when one comes across what looks like a political poem, Specifically, I'm thinking, which maybe just force forced themselves on you living in Greece, your refugee poems. I've got the two, empathy and refugee fugue. But you tend not to seem to write about, if you like, the contemporary world outside the the domestic or the, the personal. Is that a kind of conscious decision or is that just the way your muse takes you?
1: Well, I think around the time I was living in Greece and there was a lot of things happening here. I mean, you know, two weeks of writing or what have you. And my husband's a journalist, so kind of I'm very aware of that level of witnessing also. I started writing a lot of prose about Greece. So I think to a certain extent, some of that processing may have gone through the prose route. But I did start wanting to get some of what was happening around me into the poems and trying to let it in, you know, without exactly being political, but trying to incorporate my contemporary experience. So I think of that as like, you know, there are poems where I try to let in the tear gas, I try to let in some of the rioting, you know, some of the poverty And then when the refugee crisis really exploded around 2015 and 2016, and my husband was often like going to Lesbos and so on. And then these people were very evident on the streets of Athens and people coming into the port of Piraeus. I think because I was also a mother of young children at that time, it just really struck me that these people could be us. There was a, you know, seeing horrible pictures of drownings of young kids like my kids in similar clothes and my kids you know look more Greek than I do so they you know they could pass for Syrian or or what have you in a way there was a sense of I, I wanted to get more involved in it I did start going to Piraeus and volunteering and then again you know how do you bring this into your poems without exploiting someone else's experience so I think that's what I was trying to do with empathy is I'm I'm making sure it's from my point of view and not from someone else's point of view, but also that I'm, you know, distressed by this happening. You know, my children are playing in the same water as other children are drowning. It's the same water is touching both bodies. And I think also it made me read classical texts completely differently when I started looking at the geography and, you know, the Iliad is so concerned about that stretch of water between Lesbos and Anatolia, Asia Minor, Turkey, so much of the drama of the Iliad actually centers on that stretch of water. And you just see it over and over again. And you just think, people have been crossing this water and drowning, you know, for as long as there have been boats, you know, (laughs) it has been happening forever. And I, it again, there was this sense of a diachronic collapsing, realizing that these ancient Greek texts were also speaking to what's happening now. And and realizing also that these refugees are from this larger Kavafian Greek world, you know, even if you're talking about Afghanistan, this sudden feeling of, oh yes, Greece is actually much farther east and farther south than we tend to put it on the western map.
0: Yeah. Well I think we're running out of time. I wonder if I could just trouble you to read another poem, because it was a delight to have you read the first one. I think we suggested maybe sort on a, a watery theme, Barnacles. <laughs>
1: the Barnacle. Maybe the Barnacle is also one of these political poems. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, listeners
1: will judge. Thank you for this conversation. Um, the Barnacle. The Barnacle is rather odd. It's not related to the clam or limpet. It's an arthropod, the one that doesn't give a damn. Cousin to the crab and shrimp. When larval, it can twitch and swim and make decisions, tiny imp that flits according to its whim. Once grown, with nothing more to prove, it hunkers down and will remain stuck fast, and once it does not move, has no more purpose for a brain. Its one boast is it will not budge, cemented where it chanced to sink, sclerotic, stubborn as a grudge, settled. It does not need to think.
0: A. Hey, Stallings, thank you very much indeed for your time.